Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This episode of Silent Giants is brought to you by Ali. Ali, powered by Verizon locations, are developed by Verizon the world's leading technology company. In collaboration with Alley, a membership-only community workspace for creators. Each location is a community curated powered by the emerging technologies and thought leadership of Verizon. With Alley, Verizon is bridging the gap between startup and corporation by helping the community workspace build next-level ecosystems for entrepreneurs. And now, on to my interview with Andre Torres. You know, people will then come to your aid and are willing to kind of help you and and, and usher you to where you may, may need to get to. But if you, they don't see you driving the, you know, being the driving force behind that, yeah, you're not even going to attract that kind of energy to you. Yeah, yeah, check it out. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Uh, yeah. Everybody tuning in, you invited, you invited. No matter what mood you in, get excited, get excited. Everybody love the music. Let me tell you how they do it. Whether writer or an agent, let me tell you how they made it. You are now talking to a silent giant. Wanna walk in their shoes, silent giants. Wanna study they move, silent giants. Wanna know what they do, silent giants. Silent giants, y'all. <laughs> Welcome to the Silent Giants Podcast, a podcast highlighting the superstars behind your favorite superstars and in creative industries. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. To keep up with the latest on the show, be sure to follow us on Instagram at, at Silent Giants Podcast. To keep up with my life, music, and more, be sure to follow me as well at, at Corey Cambridge. This week's Silent Giant is Andre Torres. Andre is the founder of the iconic music magazine, Wax Poetics. He stopped by the podcast to chat about his upbringing in Florida, his early career as a painter, making the move to NYC, how he started Wax Poetics why he exited the print publishing business, and his new role as Vice President of Urban Catalog at Universal Music. So, without further ado, let me introduce you to the entrepreneur, executive, my friend, the silent giant, Andre Torres. Andre Torres, what's up, man? I'm all right, brother. How are you? Dude, it feels good, man. It's good to be here, Corey. Thank you, sir. It's good to be nationwide with you. Yeah, no. Well, we tried to do this on the on the West Coast, and I like now we're over though. here on the East. So. I feel like a boss. <laughs> boss talk. World nationwide. travel. That's what we do. That's what we do, baby. You know. Oh, because you're a New York cat. I was initially for what 21 years, and then oh wow, you were a real New York cat. Yeah. So I was born in New York, but grew up in Florida. Came back here after college, and then yeah, I was here 21 years after college, and moved a year and a half ago. Yeah, you roll in so. New York. Got mutual friends. Yeah, Everybody's yeah. waving to each other. Ha ha. Oh, we catching love, dinner later. You catching love. dinner later? Uh-huh. Oh, okay. <laughs> 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 got to get it in when I get here in New York, boy. It's too much. Too Look, much. I, I got to shout out my homegirl, Katie Ross. Oh yes. Yeah. Hit me up. Yes. So she helped make this interview possible. Got to give her a shout out. Man. That's dope. Yeah. She hit me. It was like, yo, you got to meet with my boy, Corey. He's good peoples. I was like, all right, yo. How you know, Katie? That's a good recommendation. I met her through Andrew LaHero, Adrian Young's manager. Okay. So they did a little store launch for the new studio and store. She was there. And yeah, we started kicking it. She talked about managing some artists. So we went out, had lunch a couple of times. But yeah, she's mad cool. She's she, definitely doing her thing. She's good yeah, people. Yeah, I'm definitely. really good friends with her, her husband. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, she turned me on. I was like, yo, this dude is ill. Fire. Man. Yeah, yeah. Fire. He's definitely got something very special going. So I see her with the daughter and like, yeah, it's all love. I, I love her, Steve. So. Also, too, like the whole LA energy is like everyone's, uh, uh, we're in New York, it's like, yo, son, you're going to pay these dudes. Oh, you know yeah. I'm saying? I'm going to love you. Yeah. But yeah. like, you got to pay these dudes. Mm-hmm. LA's just like, yo, what you working on? Right. I right. like that. Yeah, exactly. Come on out. Let's buy. <laughs> Yeah. You want a little drink a little of this? Uh-huh. Want to smoke a little of that? Smoke a little. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah man. That's it. It's easy, go, easy breezy. You know? Ain't no worries. It's just like, take it as it comes. How's the know? transition been being out in LA versus New York? 
Uh, I, I love it. I mean, I think, you know, I live like seven minutes from the beach, so I'm, I'm taking full advantage of that. Like in the morning, I wake up, get my little smoothie, I hit the water, some ocean waves and just chill and then hit the road. And I'm like driving along the coast to get to work. And it's like, by the time I get there, I'm like, yo, I feel like I'm on vacation. <laughs> like what work? And then, you know, I think coming from here, you know, being an entrepreneur, especially I was just so used to doing everything on my own. I took that same hustle to LA and yo, they just not prepared for that. You know, they got yeah. that easy breezy. Everything is cool. And I'm just, you know, working circles around them. So I like that I had this experience first before I got there. But um, now that I'm there, I, it'll be very hard for me to leave. It's, Ooh, wow. it's, it's like very comfortable. So it's interesting because I feel like, um, you know, things always go in waves. There was mm-hmm. a period where New yeah. York was super hot and the L.A. market Definitely. was just chill. Yeah, but yeah. not chill in a positive way. Right. Yeah. Um, maybe the, the, even the form of music became a little bit dated. Mm-hmm, certainly. Um, yeah. But now it's going through the same yeah. transition where kind of New York, like it's a, becoming a more of a heritage city. Yeah, very not much so. On the forefront of like what's brand new. Right. And right. LA is super what's brand new. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's a lot of creative energy out there. I think one of the visits I took, man, it must have been about three or four years ago. I was. Uh, at the low low end theory, mm-hmm, uh, yeah. flying lotus party, yeah. and you know, coming from New York and being here, like in the mid '90s, and kind of like in the underground hip hop weird DJ scene, you know, it was just crazy creativity. There was all pockets of different kinds of stuff going on. There was weird art, music mixes, and you know, and then it kind of like the hotel scene took over. They closed down all the big cu- clubs and. You know, New York sort of became much more homogenized and it became that much more difficult to find those little ill pockets of creativity in the city. But when I went to L.A., I was just like and went to that party and you could feel these 20 something year old kids like in this I yes. mean, and passionate yes. about it. Not like you go to New York, everybody standing around kind of with their arms folded like, yeah, 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 it's cool. What's up? What's next? You know what we right. doing? Like this was something special for them. And, you know, I think I, I was like feeling that kind of passion because I hadn't seen that in so long in New York that I just thought, you know, maybe this is sort of where this has come to now It's over here instead of Brooklyn now. So, and now that I'm over there and I'm meeting more kids, like <laughs> I did, I got to agree. Like there's a lot of ill shit going on in LA right now, musically. So like, I, I feel I like tell, I'm in a good spot. I always tell folks in New York, like when you're performing, if they don't boo, you did a good job. Yeah, we're exactly. <laughs> like exactly. a non-boo is an applause. Yeah, right. Exactly. Like, yes. Yeah. Don't I, take people standing there doing nothing <laughs> as a negative. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so, so where'd you grow up? I grew up in Tampa, Florida, pretty much. Yeah, we moved from New York. I was born in the Bronx, um, and we moved to New York when I was three. So, you know, when I left here, my father like owned a record store in the Bronx and you know, he'd tell me stories about dudes coming in. It's like 1972, coming into the record store, like, yo, can I write my name on the wall? And, you know, it was literally the beginning of graffiti and the whole hip-hop movement. And so at one point when I realized that he had moved us out of that, I was like, yo, are you kidding me? I could have been right in the middle of this. He's like, I don't, you don't know want to be in the middle of that. Lasted, though. <laughs> so I realized I kind of got the best of both worlds, having been, you know, born here and still had that like New Yorican, as my father calls it, spirit in me. And then we translated that to the Florida landscape. And then, you know, I finished high school, college rather. I went to school, University of Florida, and was just like, okay, that's it. Like, I got to get back to New York now. So I came back up here, was really trying to get my master's degree in painting. And then I started making beats and, you know, kind of like faded out of the art world scene and really more into music. And then... Yeah, eventually launched magazine a few years later. So your uh, let's go back to your your dad is was heavily involved in music. Was a fan of music. Yeah, huge. I mean, you know, my grandfather was like you know Spanish Harlem native, like you know running around with like all this sort of soul jazz greats, like Latin jazz, like Tito Puente and Joe Cuba, all these guys who would kind of like set the whole Latin thing off uh, in Harlem. And so my father kind of came up underneath that. And I just think it was in his bones. So, yeah, you know, he would tell me stories about seeing Jimi Hendrix and Cafe Wa down in the village, like, before he blew up. And, you know, so I always had music in the house. He was, like, a big 
head of pretty much everything from Latin jazz to, to like, you know, he turned me on to Miles Davis and a bunch of records I wound up sampling later. I stole from him, you know, classic rock stuff, you know, whatever. We had this one black music station, WTMP in Florida that we just, you know, stayed bumping consecutively. So it was always there. He never really was in the industry or anything, but you know, when we moved to Florida, he wound up leaving all the records up here in New York. So at one point when I realized, I'm like, yo, are you kidding me? But by then he had kind of started recollecting a little bit like at thrift stores. And so, yeah, by the time I got to college, he had like a nice little setup that I was able to steal from when I left to, to make my own beats with. So Did you want to pursue a, a career in music initially? No, not at all, actually. I mean, I got my degree in painting and I thought I was going to be, you know, Jean-Michel Basquiat. You know, that was, we were just talking about that on the way here. Um, you know, that was really all I wanted to do was make art. I think at some point I was such a huge hip hop fan and, you know, hearing samples, I would hear, you know, I'd go to my pop's record collection and then find a record or I'd go to a thrift store and find it. I'm like, damn, I started piecing together. Oh man, they looped this piece of this record to make that beat and you know the sort of process of putting hip-hop together became fascinating to me that I actually was holding some of the raw materials and I thought well this is interesting like I just kind of fumbled around my man had a beat machine and we started kind of making beats together this is pretty much like 96 when I first got here to New York um and so, yeah, we put out a couple of tracks on, you know, some albums. Actually, the first one was like on Freeze Records, which was where Jay-Z's album came out on, uh, The First Reasonable Doubt. So right, right, yeah. we were kind of right there in the middle of it. And, you know, I was fading out of the art world. I was working at the Metropolitan Museum and, you know, I was surrounded and inundated with art. And I just like these people were getting on my nerves. So, <laughs> you know, I was really kind of more drawn to music, you know, especially the kind of art I was making, which is very identity focused about being African-American or someone of color in America. You know, at that point, you know, there weren't a lot of outlets like you see now where there's more of a proliferation of like black artists and they're getting a lot of high visibility you know, I would go to these art shows and see like, you know, one of my favorite black artists and be nobody else black there but me and him. And I'm like, yo, bro, like, you know, I love your work, but like, don't you feel like, you know, this is the wrong audience? Like, I think brothers like us need to be seeing it. He was like, yo, man, <laughs> like, you know, you said a mouthful, bro. I don't know if we can have this conversation right here at the gallery, but, you know, take my number and let, you know, hit Let's me Let's go up. back up the best style. We yeah, can talk. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I just think I realized, like, music was so much more of a, like, a universal language. It just cut through so many of those barriers that I think in the art world just throughout history have been built up to sort of keep certain voices out um, that, you know, hip hop, especially hip hop, but music in general, just cut right through all that. You know, people, it's more of an emotional guttural response where you're kind of just drawn to it. So Asian kids, white kids, Latin kids, black kids, white kids, everybody can go, yo, I love that beat. Like, I love this way this dude is rhyming. Like, you know, for me, it just became like an easier way to sort of express myself and sort of find more variation of expression within music. So, hey, What uh, was it like studying art at, at U of S? Uh, it was great. I mean, we had some really great teachers there. You know, I was one of very, I mean, probably one of the only African-American dudes in painting, especially. Uh, I mean, maybe let alone time, in Tallahassee. Yeah, well, Gainesville. Gainesville. Yeah, that's yeah. close to Tallahassee, that's, right? Yeah, about an hour and a half. Yeah, it's Okay, I'm just all off. It's totally. It's <laughs> up further on the panhandle, Tallahassee. It's, Gainesville's a little further, more central. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I just think there were not a lot of other people that I could sort of, you know, have these deeper conversations with about art and exclusion of certain voices in the museum setting and you know, there were artists out there, you know, sort of playing in that space, but they, I wasn't really able to access them. So it was a little frustrating, but, you know, I was huge learning experience. And, uh, you know, I was just saying, I, I, now I don't have to rely on painting to make a living. So, you know, I got a garage with a little studio set up now and I'm still able to go out and 
do my thing and get away from sort of the sort of day-to-day music stuff I have to work on and then kind of just let my mind clear on the weekends and go out there and fumble around. So, yeah, I mean, I'm it's definitely informed everything else I've done. Those same ideas and things I was thinking about in art, I've just figured out a different way to express them through product or magazines or, um, yeah, I just think there's some fundamental stuff that never left that. And it, I mean, here I am, you know, 30 years later and it seems, you know, it's not going to stop. So how was the transition coming from Florida to New York? Yeah, that was, uh, (laughs) that was, that was a weird one. I mean, you know, I, I, I came up here to see the Jean-Michel Basquiat exhibition at the Whitney Museum and that was like a quick long weekend my boy had like some standby tickets because his pops worked for the airline and I remember getting off the plane and walking down Broadway and just being like yo this is it like I mean it just felt like everything that I had ever wanted was right here it was like I've been obsessed with hip-hop and hearing about all these neighborhoods and and like I'm walking by and seeing oh my god that's the you know, Tower Records where, you know, I walk in and DJ <laughs> premieres in there signing something with Guru. I'm like, oh, Lord, died and gone to heaven. So, um, you know, does, I think... Does it feel, nor- doesn't New York feel like at a certain point almost like going to Mars? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Like when you're when you're from another place. <laughs> yeah. And it's like a place that people talk about. It's always in movies. Yeah. And you're yeah, like, yo, yeah. it feels so far away. Yeah. Then when you're there, when you're, you're like, suddenly damn. here. <laughs> like, we on Mars, dog. Exactly. We done made we it. We landed, yo. Yeah. yeah. No, it's very real. So <laughs> I think that first initial feeling I got, I was like, I got to figure this out. So as soon as I graduated, you know, I didn't really have anything. I had some family here. Um, and my mother had sort of just reunited with her father. I never knew the dude growing up, um, but he was living out in Staten Island. He was alone. His wife had just passed away. So, you know, I was like, yeah, I'm trying to move to New York. And they were like, well, here, why'd you come live with your grandfather? And, you know, I never really knew the dude growing up. So it was interesting. Like, I'm sort of getting to know him for the first time. And then I'm also getting to know New York, you know. So it was a real learning experience. I think, you know, it takes a good year to kind of get your footing here. So that first one, I started working at the Metropolitan Museum and, you know, I'm living out in Staten Island and I'm working oh, on man, the you Upper East Side and I'm just like, yo, is this like really what I'm doing every day on the train <laughs> for an hour and a half? And like, you on a boat, bro. And then all my peoples are living in Brooklyn. Yeah, I was literally <laughs> on a boat, a train, a bus, like every day. I was like, yo, it's killing me here. So finally got in a, a little basement apartment in Brooklyn um, about six months after I got here and bounced over there. And, that was it. Once I had my own spot, you know, I was on my way. So, you know, it was definitely challenging in that first year because even though you have friends, you know, at some point you wind up back home in your room by yourself and you start going, damn, there's like 12 million people here and I'm all alone. And you start feeling that hit. And, you know, I think I've known lots of people who come here and within, you know, six months, a year, they were back home. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, man, oh, yeah. It's too much for me. So Casualties of war. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I remember one dude stumbled back on. I remember saying, yo, man, good luck. He had a little party. He moved to New York. We were like, yo, man, I ain't hear from him for about six months. Next thing you know, door not I'm coming to, he's standing there on the doorstep. I'm like, dude, what you doing here? You're supposed to be in New York. He's like, man, my feet hurt, man. I mean, that was the first thing he said to me. His feet hurt. And I'm thinking, you mean to tell me you moved back here because you was tired of walking hurt. because your feet hurt? Maybe you need to get some different shoes, bro. <laughs> so I, was, I always kept that in the back of my mind. Like, yo, I'm not going out like this dude. So yes, when yeah, those yeah. moments came, I thought about him. I was like, okay, I'm push through. <laughs> get some new shoes, whatever you got to do, Get the Dr. Yeah, exactly. Some gelling, Magellan, whatever. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, that's something everybody needs to go through when you get here because it requires that kind of resiliency to really make it here, at least to figure out and navigate where it is you're trying to get through. Because I think, you know, especially when you're young, it all seems like everything's possible. Um, And, you know, that's good. You want to have that feeling. But if you're not careful about how you navigate and what you're trying to get to and setting some real goals, short-term and long-term, 
you know, this city will eat you up, man. Or, or so also shifting your goals. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Very good point. Yeah. Like I that, think that's so huge part of it, without a doubt. It's almost like uh, with your college major. Yeah. Like, right. You may exactly. major in something else. But that's yeah. not what your life's going to probably be. Right. Yeah. You know what I'm definitely. Saying? Yeah. As I said, I got a degree in painting and came here thinking, oh, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. And then next thing you know, I'll make a left turn. I'm in the music thing. And I've worked corporate. I worked in the World Trade Center. And... So, yeah, I think you never quite know. And I'm always telling people that because, excuse me, I think, you know, a lot of people do have this idea that they sort of set these goals for themselves and then they get depressed when they get to that age or whatever and they're not there. And a lot of times I'm reminding people, you came up with that idea when you were like 17. Like, Mm. you didn't know what it was going to be like by the time you were 25 and all this stuff you had to go through to get to that point. So, yeah, that shifting of goals, I think, is very important into allowing yourself that kind of freedom and not having some strict timeline attached to your life and feeling like, oh, man, I'm 30 and I didn't get here. I don't own my own home or whatever, and so therefore I'm a failure. It's like, you know, I've watched, especially in the art world, you know, dudes, you know, 50, 60 years old before anybody ever even knew who they were, but they were plugging away doing their thing for 30 years and, you know, in silence pretty much until suddenly everybody's like, Oh my God, this dude is so ill. So I realize, you know, it's a long game and I'm definitely like very aware of that. And I think somewhat my career speaks to that, that journey because it definitely didn't all happen instantly and overnight. And I think this new sort of attention craved culture creates this feeling of among young people that like, Oh man, you got to get it popping. Like you 22, 23, you got to be on the IG flexing in your Balenciaga and this, that, and the other. And it's like, yo, that's not really a realistic way to think about living your life. Cause, um, once you get there, you, there are still more goals and things to achieve and it isn't all very clear to you at that early age. So yeah, allowing yourself that freedom, I think is a big part of it. Well, it also too, like I, I moved to North city to be a rapper. Oh, did you? Wow. Okay. And, uh, yeah, I still make a little song. I got little bars every now and then. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. now I'm shifting more into doing media and, and podcasting. But right. it's one of those things you realize that you know it's about having a career. Yes. You know what yes. I mean? I think a lot of times people don't see it as, I don't know, rap is almost like being in the NFL where right, you have like a right. four to five yeah. year max window. Yeah, most And definitely. it's really hard to build a career off of football unless you're Peyton Manning or Tom Brady right. or Ray Lewis or some type of like iconic yeah. legend, which is yeah. only 1% of right. the 1%. right. Um, yep. It's about creating a career off of what you love, not necessarily mm-hmm. you know, having a broader vision of things. Right. Yeah. No, I agree. I think, uh, you know, a lot of people are looking at so short term and this sort of job, job, job and career doesn't come into play there. And I think, you know, it's if you're passionate and love something enough, there's a way to finagle your way into that in a long-term position. I get a lot of people always ask me like, yo, what kind of advice would you give me? I'm trying to get in. And it's just like, yo, do it. Like, go in and do it like you did. Like, yo, I want to do a podcast. Just start doing it. You know, it ain't like you don't need to sit around and wait for somebody to kind of give you their blessing or to sort of sit you down and say, okay, here's two microphones and a recorder, and this is what you're going to do when you make a podcast. It's like, no, man, like, if you sit around waiting for that, you'd be waiting a long, long time, time because yeah. a lot of it is you starting it. And then, yeah, you get out there and people see your passion and energy behind it. And then it's like, oh, yo, you know what? I got, I know a little bit about this here. You know what? I see this microphone you're using here. There's another one that may be better that you might want to look into. You know, people will then come to your aid and are willing to kind of help you and, and, and usher you to where you may, may need to get to. But if, they don't see you driving the, you know, being the driving force behind that. Yeah, you're not even going to attract that kind of energy to you. So you'll be forever lost on your own thinking, man, what's going on? I don't know what the problem is. And I see so many young dudes sitting around waiting and, you know, five years, 10 years go by and, you know, they kind of miss that window because I'm always telling people, you know, these windows or opportunities may open up, but as soon as they open, they start closing. And right. if you don't jump through it in time, you may not get it. And so that may have some drastic effect on your life. And a lot of times people, you know, I just think are fearful. You know, I mean, I think, you know, 
especially when you have this thing in your mind about what you want to do and how you want to do it. And then suddenly you got to make a left turn and it may be an uncomfortable territory, but it may help you get over here where you need to be. You know, they get a little hesitant and a little fearful. And so, you know, I think, you know, that confidence of, you know, dealing with the sort of rejection and all the things that come from living in New York, that kind of tough life builds up that resilience so that, you know, you can get up every day and hop on a train and go grind it out and just stay on that for, you know, seven, 10 years, 20 years, whatever it's going to take to get you where you need to be. Uh, so speaking of, of career shifting, how did you get into journalism from the fine art world? Wow. Yeah. Um, I guess in college, I had done some illustrations for a jazz magazine that was uh, in the same town that we were, that our college was. Uh, it's called Jazzes. It was kind of like a contemporary jazz magazine. But they eventually, I knew one of the editors there, and he was like, they were trying, he was trying to hip it out a little bit. So he would be like, oh, I got this uh, album review. You know, you want to write about this Fuji's record, you know, because we're trying to do some. I was like, yeah, yeah, it's cool. You know, he knew I loved hip hop and I had never really written before, but I figured, you know, I can talk about a record that I love. So started doing a couple of reviews for him and slid more out of the, um, out of the illustration game more into like doing album reviews. And so by the time I got out of college and moved to New York, you know, I was fully committed to like being an artist or um, at least kind of being in the art world in some capacity, but you know, the music thing kind of kept drawing and I was like, you know, trying to hustle illustration while I was up here too. Wasn't really going anywhere. You know, it's a big network of people that you kind of need to get tapped into, which I clearly wasn't. Um, and I think at one point, you know, I was working in the World Trade Center and I was collecting so many records to make beats with. I was spending all my money on records. I mean, it was insane. I probably had, I was living in a little basement apartment. I probably had five, 6,000 records. And it literally took up the entire place. Uh, two turntables and an MPC. I'm making beats every day. And so I started thinking about, it was like the beginning of the internet. And I'm seeing all these little groups of kids talking about records and trading info about stuff and you know i'm there obsessing over all these records and you know i'm copying their emails and printing them out and i'm putting them in my pocket and i'm taking them into the record store i'm looking for these records you know and i realized yo this is ridiculous like i can't keep track of all this information you know and i have been hearing stories about people who grew up here in new york about certain artists or records of how it was back in the day at the beginning of hip-hop and you know, for them, they grew up here. It was kind of like, yeah, it was just sort of part of growing up. You know, to me, having grown up in Florida, but having, you know, been born here, I felt like I was kind of missing out on it. So I think there was also this sort of like reclaiming or sort of trying to relive part of the what I had missed. So, you know, I got this idea about doing some type of documentary about uh, beat digging culture. DJs and how it had been part of the early days of hip hop and how these records that DJs were spinning back and forth had kind of become the foundation of hip hop. When the samplers came, they started looping up those same beats and some of those beats are still being used today, 40 years later. So I think the idea was, and I knew somebody who had gotten out of film school. So I went to him and said, yo, I'm gonna make this documentary. So I started doing research and realized, man, it's, I can't find nothing about James Brown, a Sly Stone, there's like, and I've been hearing about some crazy obscure artists that you, you know, even on the internet at that time, you couldn't find any info on. But I'm hearing these dudes talking about it. So I just hit my man one day. I was like, yo, man, you know what? Somebody needs to do this documentary, but they need something that they could be able to reference. <laughs> so I think what we need to do is do the reference material. So I got decided we start like this magazine journal. And so I went out and bought every hip hop magazine, culture, music magazine that I was in a fan of, but they may only have like one article on what I wanted to do, like talking about records and one in the source or one in double XL or one. And I ripped them all out and then stapled them together. I said, this is the magazine I want to do. Like everything else that they're not talking about that's sort of slipping through the cracks, especially at the time in hip hop, it was sort of like, 
becoming obsessed with more of the sort of lifestyle part of things instead of the music. And, you know, I was very interested in the sort of process of music making and how producers made beats and the connection between these older artists and what they were sampling and newer producers. Um, and yeah, I just kind of winged it. I was like, I told my man, cause he had worked at that same magazine that I had in college. And it was like, yo, that sounds dope. You know, what you want to do? And so I was like, I don't know how you do this, but you want me to editor? Cause I mean, I don't really know how to edit. I know that's what you did. And so he's like, yeah, I got this kid I work with. He's like our designer here, but I know he kind of wants to get into some print stuff. I was like, dope. Yeah. Tell him, let's go bring it in. So that was it. I just kind of, I was a recruiter in the World Trade Center, so I would be like off, you know, looking on the internet at different articles about records. And then, you know, I was a recruiter, so I knew how to like talk to dudes in the IT world. And I just sort of play, parlayed that into the music world where I would just recruit these writers. I would hit them up on the internet, email, I'd see their email address or whatever. And I'd be like, yo, man, I was just reading that article you wrote about, whatever. It's like, Yo, it's dope. I got this idea for this magazine I want to start, man. You know, I don't really have any money, but I loved what you did. You know, if, you know, you want to get involved. And I think the passion that I came with was enough for them to be like, yo, you know, good looking out. Thanks for the note. I'm glad you liked the piece. Like, yeah, it sounds dope. What do you want to do? And I was like, yo, I don't have any money, but yo, you know, I'm going to get you. You know, like at some yeah, point yeah. when we get right, like, so... Yeah, first issue really came together pretty fast. I mean, we just hit a bunch of people and they were all down and hit me up and were just like, you know, trying to do the process of putting a magazine together, getting photographs and stuff scanned. And, you know, I didn't know anything about distribution or any of the sort of logistics of doing a magazine. So it was a huge learning process. Um, and then, yeah, we kind of just, I was still working at World Trade Center and then the towers went down about a month. I was just before. about to ask you about that because uh, yeah. did you launch Wax Poetica yeah, in 2000, 2001? 2001, yeah, December 11th, 2001. So it was literally three months to the day after 9 11. And that was because I got laid off. I worked in Tower One on the 78th floor. So my desk, when I turned my chair, I would look right at the Empire State Building, which is the route that the planes took. So you know, I knew I got laid off because I was not recruiting or doing business. But I was working on my magazine at work. Um, they were like, oh, it's not really working out. I was like, you know what? Like you We, we said fired earlier, each other. I think we fired <laughs> each other. Um, you're right. So, um, you know, I was like, it's cool. Got my little unemployment check. I'm like, I'm going to try to get this magazine finished. And, and, and then, yeah, like less than a month later, the towers went wow. down. And I was like, damn, like. You know, I knew people who were still in there and they were missing. And, you know, I would look at the news and I would see the building all mangled up. And I had been working there for about two years. So I had all these shortcuts and ways I would go around the building and I'd see it down there. And I was like trying to finagle, like picture, like, okay, what corner is this? Like, I used to go through here, like, oh my God, that's that piece of the building. Like, oh man. And it was like, you know, two weeks, I was like, kind of like depressed. 
even though I wasn't there anymore, every day I would get up, take a shower, whatever. And I would go happy hour pretty much because that was the routine after work when I worked there. I would go meet him at the bar. We would talk about advertising. So I had planned on going back there again that day, just like every other day. And so, yeah, if I hadn't even gotten laid off, I would have been in there that morning at 830. So, you know, I I realized about two weeks in that I was like, yo, you know what, man? I could have been in that motherfucker. Like, there's clearly a reason I'm still here. Maybe it's to just finish this magazine. So, I kind of popped out of it and I told my partners, all right, let's go. We got like almost done here. Let's just bang this first one out and see what happens. Like I didn't have a plan beyond that. It was just like, get the first issue out. And I mean, we really had to beg, borrow and steal. I mean, we were like spending up everybody's credit card, borrowing money from parents just to get that first issue out. And we did, we got it out literally three days, three months to the date, December 11th, we had a launch party and, yeah, it kind of took off. There clearly were a lot of people who have been looking for something very similar. Again, I didn't have a plan. So once we sold all those, it was like, okay, now what? And they were like, well, you got to you gotta wait for your money from the distributor. I'm like, what do you mean? They're like, yeah, that's about six months. I'm like, oh, Lord. So I literally waited until we got all the money to do a second one. It was just sort of trial and error. But there, there's no YouTube back then. So how do you know yeah, even how to no. start a magazine? Like, I literally bought a book and it's available right now for anyone who's interested. Uh, how to make a magazine or newsletter for dummies. That's literally <laughs> the book I bought. And it told me about distribution and printing and all this. And, you know, I knew one dude who hooked me up with Raymond Roker from Herb Magazine. And he you know, was cool. And it was like, oh, you need to talk to this dude at the distribution company. And I was like, what was that? And that started it. And like little by little, somebody would say, oh, you need paper stuff. You got to talk to this guy. And it was just <laughs> trial and error. And um, yeah, we figured it out. Like, you know, when it's your money and you don't have any coming in, you you spend lots of time trying to figure it out to make sure you can make it work. And uh yeah, it took a minute, but we got those first couple issues out, and then it just sort of took a life of its own. Uh, what were your first interviews? Wow. I think in the first one, we did a few weird ones like Cut Chemist and DJ Shadow. We had an article on Idris Muhammad, um, DJ Supreme, which is a uh, Seattle dude. Wow, you're taking me back. There was a piece on David Axelrod in that first one. Um, and, you know, I was editor in chief, so, you know, I would write the editor's letter, but then I was kind of managing with my editor, you know, all these other kids who were doing most of the hard work. But, you know, a lot of them weren't journalists either. They're like, oh, you know what? This legendary drummer who played for James Brown lives down a block from me, and I just found out. Like, I would love to interview him. Are you guys interested? And we'd be like, well, yeah. Can you send us some of your clips or your writing? And they're like, oh, well, I've never done this before. And we would work with them, though. We're like, well, probably nobody else has access to this guy. Right, and they've right. established a relationship. Access is equally as important. That's the key. So, yeah. And they were passionate about this stuff. We would just sort of guide them. Okay, here's the kind of questions we want to ask. And, um, and yeah, we would get the results we wanted. Some of these guys now have gone on to become much bigger writers than I ever was, got screenplays made and stuff. So, you know, I think, you know, like we were fumbling around and trying to figure it out, we understood, hey, we're all in this together. Like, you want to ride with us, you know, come through. I saw it more as a platform for people who had this common interest to be a part of this and, and tell these stories because these were things I had just been hearing people talk about. But there was never anything sort of documented real. And having gone to art school, I had a very clear vision about the way I wanted this thing to look because, you know, I think looking at the magazines that I was at the time, you know, they seemed, you know, disposable. You know, I mean, they were printed on pretty bad paper and there was lots of errors and editing and spelling. And, you know, I got a little OCD, so it would irk me that like, yo, this is our shit. Like, why are they like treating it like, nobody like we shouldn't like be preserving this meanwhile i'm looking at like all these art books and everything's all meticulously laid out and it's on good paper and footnotes and all this and so 
you take that seriously when it's treated like that. And I thought, oh, I'm going to take this stuff that everybody thinks is not important and I'm going to flip it and put it in a way where you have to take this seriously. And so I think early on we were super crazy about it to the point it almost was too academic. I had to kind of ease out of that and make it a little bit more sort of consumer friendly to find that sweet spot where we were still intelligent but cool. I, I want to touch on that because you had a... a- Wax was also, I think, one of the first magazines to really have like a a, a nice fine art quality mm. aesthetic, which goes right back on. to your background yeah, in art. Definitely, yeah, a lot of things in hip hop at the time felt very. Mm-hmm. I hate to say disposable, but they didn't come with like artistic angle. Yes, yes, yeah. No, that's great, great way to put it. Yeah, even better than disposable. Like, how'd you make that decision kind of early on that you wanted to make that aesthetic with the with the magazine? Yeah, I mean, I think certainly it comes out of my own aesthetic preferences and kind of what I had been looking at. But then there was also because what um, also what about resistance? Because it's also too. It's well, almost like if you look at like a if Jay Z and Kanye are on tour and watch the throne, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Jay is like, yo, yay! This stage setup is. Crazy fucking expensive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Jay's like, no, but for the art though, right? Like, was yeah, there was exactly. there was there any resistance on like, like yeah, the, I mean, the, I the think because yeah, it was magazine? expensive. That right. was, I think, the biggest challenge for us was getting it to a point where you know we knew people wanted this, but were they willing to pay this kind of price point? Because yeah, we started out like at eight, ten dollars in like the early two thousands. You know, for a magazine at the time, we're going like for $4.95. Yeah, yeah. You know, that was definitely a big jump. But this is what I was going to say earlier. I just caught back. You know, knowing this audience who was very much like myself, these are people who collected records and wanted to keep things. I found myself buying all these hip hop magazines, reading them and throwing them out. I thought, man, that's a waste of money. At least if I make something, it may be more expensive, but it'll be something that they'll never want to throw in the garbage. Like, this is something you could keep, put it on your shelf. A month, two months, a year, five years later, you could pull it back out, reread something, and you know, be like, "Oh, damn, yeah, that was, that's timeless." You know, I think was the goal that I was looking for for something that, you know, would no matter when at some point in your life you were to go refer back to this, it would still be relevant. You know what, Dre? I'm, I'm listening to you speak, and I'm thinking about the time period by which Wax came out. Mm-hmm. And, and 2001 was also a major shift in the sound of hip hop. Yes, where it was very, very, very so. vinyl based. Yes, uh, and go back to soul samples. Mm-hmm. Like how much of like you think that timing of you know Kanye and that like that soul sample vibe yeah. played a role in the success of the magazine? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I think you know that's one of the sweet spots of you know the timeline of history is that I think I mean, a timeline of hip hop. I think you know that doesn't occur as much. You're not seeing as many people sampling records, especially because, you know, you're hearing mostly kids making beats on laptops and, you know, they have lots of sound banks and, you know, the Southern sort of hip hop sound never really relied too heavily on samples. But I think coming out of that golden era in the sort of mid nineties, and then we kind of hit this shiny suit era and like, you know, 96, 97, you know, when DMX 20 years ago this year comes back with like Rough Riders and Swizz Beat sound, you know, it starts to become much more raw again, the sound. And I think that's when, yeah, you hear uh, Kanye popping back up with the soul samples and Just Blaze. And so I think that was refueled a lot of the interest in this older music and how it connected to hip hop. Um, so yeah, it was a, it was kind of perfect timing. And I think we rode that out with the sort of, especially more on the independent side guys like Mad Lib and MF Doom, who were really kind of pushing it into weird places. Um, so there was, you know, some of that going on at, in a commercial level, but still bubbling pretty hard on the underground as well. So yeah, it was a good period. Definitely. Cause that was like super into like little brother at the time. Oh my God. Yeah. Like I that mean, was dude, like my everything. Dude, dude. Well, it's like, funny. We were just talking show about them yesterday. Everything. Yeah. Yeah. We were talking about menstrual show yesterday in relation to the whole Drake fiasco. Yes. Yeah, yes. So. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I know within the timing of which that was taken. Yeah. Where, what he right. Was going right. For. Exactly. I think out of context, people don't get that. And it's, it's just like, damn, because, like, but once it comes out, Going yeah. back and getting right. That's what I say. I saw the, the accurate note information he wrote yesterday, but most people won't ever see no, that. No, no, yeah. because like yeah. you could always type in. I typed in Drake this morning. His response statement was like, 
One little article. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, unfortunately. At this point, CNN covered, like, yeah. Drake and exactly. Blackface. Like, fuck. It's kind of hard to live that one down. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I know where, where he was coming from for the era. Yeah. But no, just totally. damn. But yeah, no, bad, bad, not a good look, that's for sure. Also, too, you, you created this magazine during the, the rise of digital. Yeah, yeah. That so, was like, what was challenge. the challenge? Right. Like, yeah. uh, how did you manage to succeed, like, during that era? It's also the golden age of how the t- transformation of print to digital. Right, right. Yeah, that was definitely the most challenging part. And in the end, I think that's probably why I wound up stepping away from it in the end, because, um, you know, it was trying to fight the inevitable. Um, I think, you know, quickly people started to. Especially as did you know maybe two thousand seven two thousand eight really things started to kick in heavy for the internet, um, you know people were just sort of writing magazines off. Um, I think the generation that we were a part of came up during magazines, so they were more familiar with it. But as the next generation came, they weren't really buying the Source or Double XL. Those magazines at one point were ruling the hip hop world, but now you've got blogs all over the place that are writing about the same stuff and they're getting it up quicker. It may not be as in depth and, and as well written, but you know, people were craving the content. So um, what we always t- sort of told ourselves, you know, which worked at times and other times not is, you know, we're still making this physical product and, you know, this is for a very specific person who, sure, they may be on the Internet, but they still have this love of the sort of tactile. These are people who buy records. And, you know, there was a lot of sort of hesitation or, you know, like just complete like disregard for digital in that world. Guys were like, oh, that doesn't have the same sound quality and I'll never listen to MP3s. And, you know, so there were a lot of purists that were sort of part of, of of the world that we were in. So we, you know, were able to hold on probably longer than some other magazines. Um, and then, you know, you kind of quickly realize this internet thing ain't going nowhere, you know? So it's like, well, how do we straddle these two worlds and how can we kind of deliver to this fan who's been there forever? But then, you know, get these younger kids who, you know, I get kids, they come up to me like, oh man, Wax Poetics, you know, I was like, you know, and, you know, I was already in my 30s when I started the magazine, but they're like, oh, man, I've been reading that shit since high school. And then I'm like, damn, yo, you reading that in high school? Like, I wish I would have had something like that in high school. So yeah. it's cool to see these kids that were catching on to that so early, how it's informed. You know, some of these guys work at the label now. I run into them. Um, and they've, you know, taken that same journey. And I, it's interesting to see how I was at least maybe a small part of the sort of knowledge base that they, they started with. So, um, yeah, that was eventually it got to a point where the bottom fell out of both the publishing industry, print in particular, and the music industry. And we were literally right at the center of those two crossroads because, um, you know, it was a music, a print music magazine. And I think, that was really where we had to start like figuring out, okay, how are we going to manage this and still be able to make a living and feed our families? And, you know, again, the economy fell apart, you know, and I think we had been diversifying ourselves. We were doing books and lots of experiential stuff. We had a nice little thing going with advertisers. We were consulting for labels. And um, so I don't think it hit us as quickly as it did some other magazines who were so just dependent on magazine sales. But, you know, within a couple of years, as some of that stuff sort of died off and we were realizing, oh man, this is literally at the core of our business and it's broken. The model is broken. Um, I think it was like, yo, I got to figure something else out, you know, and my partners kept going and they've been able to flip it. We were starting to look at a different model as I was on my way out and they figured out a way to kind of make it work now. So, uh, cause also too, at the time period, not only is, you know, are people shifting to like MP- uh, MP3s mm-hmm. or streaming, uh, but also the sonics of music are changing as well. Very much. Right. So. You have like, like the yeah. D4L era. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, do you totally. think that that like played a role as well? And yeah, just... yeah, definitely. I mean, especially kids who were growing up listening to that they don't have context for a DJ premiere beat or something like that. This is, you know, it's hip hop becoming pop music. 
Um, and it's changing geographically where there was a real stronghold, as we talked about with New York earlier at one point, which was at the foundation of that kind of like craft and art around hip hop that we talked so much about and spoke to the fan of um, that. Yeah, you start to realize, you know, there's all these areas all over the U.S. who are now part of this. And it's not so centralized anymore. There's kids in St. Louis and in Atlanta and all over the Midwest that are, you know, doing it and they got their own flavor and they may not be part of this older tradition. At least, you know, there were kids who were actively and as they should, you know, trying to do something as far away from that because they are younger and they're saying, oh, that's what old people listen to. That ain't what I want to do. So, and I respect that because... You know, I'm not probably typical of a lot of people in my age group because, you know, I welcome the change. I think, you know, you should have younger. I keep telling people because they'll complain to me about new hip hop. And I'll say, if if there's a 16-year-old kid making a song and you like it, they probably are not doing something right because, you know, it's supposed, you're supposed to be in your forties going, Whoa, man, what is that? Like that, that, oh man, that ain't no real music, you know, because that's what we heard when we were right. 16 and you put it on for your parents or grandparents. Oh man, it's hip hop stuff, man. That ain't real music. And so I remind them, oh, you sounded just like your pops or your granddad exactly. did back 20, 30 years ago. Like, I think, you know, having this sort of, remind yourself of what it was like when you first heard a song and your boy said, yo, you got to hear this. And y'all just put it on and were just like, oh my God, banging your head. Like, damn, you didn't come to it with 30 years of music knowledge and all this baggage that you felt like you had to have the music needed to do this, that, and the other. It was just a response, an emotional response. And I think, you know, when I kind of remind dudes in their forties of that, they're a little bit like, huh. Okay, you know, like they're a little bit more like thinking about, well, maybe I am making a little bit of a judgment here, a rush to judgment about these kids. Like, give them some space. They'll figure it out, you know. Look, people are inherently scared of change. Yeah. There's a uh, a podcast that I'm really into right now called Bowery Boys, which is mm. a podcast about the history of New York City. Oh, that's uh, So they yeah. go into like Orchard Street, Lower yeah. East Side, yeah. and like... Chinatown. It's these like really in depth hour long. That's dope. Uh, it's like discussion based podcast. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm gonna peep it. But it it made me see gentrification a little bit differently. Mm. In the same way, how people are scared of change mm-hmm. because we're living in a time period where Bed Stuy was black. Yeah. Harlem was black. Certainly. Right. Our our parents will identify these neighborhoods as being black neighborhoods. Certainly. Yeah. But these neighborhoods were another neighborhood before right. we were there. Exactly. Right. So you can go through <laughs> the history of Lower East Side, and it was a. Yep. Uh, it was a it was an orchard. There was an apple orchard, like before. Wow! wow. Damn. Okay. It became what it is today. Yeah. And then it became like a um, very strong Irish community, and yeah. then a very strong yeah. Jewish community, and then it became like kind of what mm-hmm. it is today. Yeah. These neighborhoods are yeah. constantly changing, but when you're Certainly. living in the moment, everyone's scared. Right. Everyone's right. freaked the fuck out. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh no! Nah, back so in my true. day. Yeah. Oh look at the neighborhood <laughs> changing now. Uh huh. It's yeah. like, but also too. When the neighborhood was predominantly black, there was also drugs. Right. Not everything was positive about the experience. You know, and I I always remind people, too, like, I lived in Bed-Stuy, but I wasn't born there. I didn't grow up there. Sure, I'm African-American, but... I was a transplant as well. I was, yeah. I was gentrifying it just as much as the white dude who lived next door to me, too. So, you know, I hear that... College educated. Right, Right. exactly. (laughs) Art kid. Yeah. It's like, you know, you ain't from here either. So you need to check yourself. It ain't just the white kids you should be complaining about. So, yeah, no, I think uh, it's very true about New York, especially because uh, I remember being in Fort Greene Park and we had our kids in the the little play area and at one point I'm pushing him on the swing there's two women next to me and they're both speaking French and they both have their kids and and I started thinking about you know they were saying how they had lived in Manhattan at one point and how they had moved out here to Brooklyn and how happy they were about everything and how they loved the neighborhood and you know most people would say oh gentrification and I started looking at the history of Brooklyn and realizing, well, yeah, at one point, there were lots of European people here. living here in it was, this it was, one area. It was area a German town. Before, Brooklyn is yeah, the <laughs> Brooklyn, German spelling. Yeah. Right. It's like, you know, 
it was they had it first <laughs> and then they kind of left it and then we took it but now they coming back right. and so and you know this will continue to evolve. human civilization and so yeah i think you're right about that sort of one moment people find themselves and they can't see the sort of bigger picture yeah, it's it's funny how they kind of also kind of ties into into wax yeah, right because yeah, now we're seeing a, we're seeing a renaissance oh in vinyl God. like vinyl to me is now like um uh, when you want to now, you have some folks who want to get the the wine bottle, the wine mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that has the, the, the twist top. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You know, quick, and then you have easy. some folks that really care about. No, nah, I mean, I got to get that wine key. Yeah, yeah you know what I mean. I got to get that decanter. I got to mm-hmm, meet that experience. Mm-hmm, and like yeah. vinyls become like the fine wine of music now. Very much so. Like That's if you're a true great. music lover and you're truly passionate about it, and you're like, true. oh, it says something yeah. about you to have that like, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> that duck horn wine. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that, you know, the number one vinyl retailer is Urban Outfitters because it's replaced the traditional music store and you see the role music plays in people's lives because it's being sold along housewares and clothing. And it's sort of become one of those objects that people, because, you know, they're listening to music on their phone all day and you know, you can't necessarily, it's not like back in the day, you walk around with a boombox and Radio Rahim, everybody knew you was listening to PE. You on your phone now, on headphones, nobody knows, you know, what. So this is a way for people to be like, yo, I love this. You know, they put the record up, you know, when I was at Genius, they all kind of just kept their records like at their desk. It was almost like uh, mementos. Right, right. Many of them hadn't open them they didn't even have record players but you know it's a way to kind of identify with the group in a way where it shows your interest and so i think you know you see merch is very big now concert tees both in the hip-hop world you know and even in the rock world those vintage shirts are going for you know three four five hundred dollars now i mean it, so it, it says something it's like you bring a shorty back to the crib you play Miles on Spotify, oh, yeah, yeah. or you play Miles on vinyl. Right, yeah, it's a whole yeah, different thing, exactly. baby. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You already know where that night is going. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I thought about you. <laughs> exactly. And, yo. and so once you left Wax, you went on to Genius, and what was your role at Genius? Uh, at Genius, I was executive editor. So at first, I was interested in the editor in chief position, kind of because I had been editor in chief and. Um, thought, oh, yeah, I can do this. It was pretty much running the website and content. Um, in hindsight, I would have never been able to do that. So it's, I'm glad that I didn't because at one point in the interview process, which was exhausting, I think I probably went through four interviews, um, they were like, yo, there's this other position. You know, it's not editor-in-chief, but, you know, we really need somebody to, you know, and I think, you know, you might be really good at it. It's running this Spotify collaboration that we're about to launch. And they had this thing called Fact Tracks and mm-hmm. it's called Behind the Lyrics. So, you know, I I basically, they showed it to me and I was like, yo, this is dope. Cause I actually specifically was really trying to get out of the print world and into the tech world. So a lot of the interviews I was doing right out when I came out of Wax Poetics and that one year that I was really intensely looking was like, interviewing with Apple and Instagram and I had to be with Bandcamp. And um, so, yeah, I think, you know, by the time I, I got to genius, I was like, okay, I'm in a tech company. Um, but what are y'all doing here? And so when they told me Spotify, I was like, Oh man, tech company and streaming music. Like this is exactly what I want to do. And it was editorial, but it was a different form of editorial. It was like doing, you know, 10,000 word articles condensed into like these little cards. And so how you get all this information. So it was challenging and it was new. Everybody there is super smart, like super passionate. There was a lot of freedom and it's a lot of energy in that building. So yeah, even though I was only there for about eight months, um, it's again, one of those where I feel like I was there for a reason. There was definitely something I took away from that, that I'm still applying. Uh, in this new job, so and so in that new job, you are now yes. living, uh, you know, sunnier pastures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think some of the struggle has paid off. That's for sure. <laughs> and so now you are the VP of Urban Catalog at Universal Enterprises. I am. Yes. What, yes. what does that mean? 
Uh, what is your day to day like? Means a lot of responsibility. Um, like, what's your day to day? What is what is the day that job to entail? day? Wow. So you know, it could be anything from going to the Capitol building to meet with Ethiopia, who runs Motown, to talk about you know what we're doing with Erica Badu and her anniversary to. Um, you know, going back and forth with Rock Nation about something we're working on for Jay-Z. You know, I'm working on lots of like deluxe editions, lots of anniversaries. Okay. So, you know, I'm watching a few different collaborations, which I can't say just yet, but um, you know, I, I'm I've been looking at it a, maybe a little differently than a sort of traditional record label person because I've had a lot of sort of editorial experience and entrepreneurial experience. So, you know, launching that platform, Urban Legends, and sort of getting a sort of content coming out of a record label instead of relying on other places to sort of talk about the stuff that's ours, um, I think was a big step and sort of at least giving this place a voice. Uh, for urban music and, you know, showing that, you know, we care just as much as these media companies. Um, so I think, you know, there's a lot of dealing with that side of it in the content world. You know, we have like a huge release schedule. So managing the process of getting these records out, getting, you know, micro sites built. We just did one for the 20th anniversary of uh, It's Dark and Hell is Hot for DMX, um, which, you know, this is 20 years later, DMX sort of took over hip hop in 98. And, you know, they had already kind of reissued the record. So it's like, okay, if there's no play here physically, uh, what can I do digitally to sort of drive engagement? So for me, it's really about bringing a lot of this music back to the surface. Uh, people realizing now that, you know, hip hop is catalog and that there's a group of people who grew up on this when they were younger and, they're older now, and just like every other generation, they kind of like, you know, start thinking back, become nostalgic. Many of them have more disposable income now, so they can, you know, buy more deluxe editions. Vinyl, clearly, as we were just talking about, has sort of made a comeback. So I think I kind of came uh, after having sort of built all my sort of early skill sets in that world, you know, and to kind of now find myself inside being able to produce huge amounts of vinyl and vinyl box sets. You know, I'm very familiar with that community and kind of what they're looking for. You know, I think, you know, hip hop has matured to a point now where um, it deserves that uh, that treatment that has traditionally been given to you know, rock jazz music and, right. or rock acts. And so, you know, as rock matured and got to a sort of classic rock stage, you know, they began to get that treatment and we're kind of at a classic hip hop stage. And so, um, you know, I think, you know, Universal has been much more progressive in understanding the importance of urban music and its future, um, especially as we move into a streaming world and, and hip hop sort of dominates uh, all of that. It was the number one genre last year for the first time uh, in the Nielsen report. So, you know, it's it's looking like a very bright future for hip hop. And I think, you know, they understood someone had to come in and kind of like have a vision for how they were going to sort of see this rolling out in the next five, 10, 20 years. So that's really, I think before it was more like, Hey, you know, what's the anniversary was the name? just sort of simple reissues. I'm coming with definitely more of a strategy and how do we partner with bravado and do merchandise and what are the, what's the experiential component and, you know, content. I understand, you know, after having been in journalism for so long, um, you know, it's, it's what drives engagement. Um, so yeah, I'm big on narrative and sort of infusing that into the sort of product side of what we do. And, and lastly, uh, Andre, what advice do you have, uh, you know, for folks uh, mm. looking to get into uh, the music career or, or any career? Um, yeah, just yeah. your advice. I mean, I touched on it a little bit earlier, but I would say do it. <laughs> you know, not to coin Nike's phrase, but you can't sit around waiting for somebody to hold your hand and walk you through whatever it is that you want to do. I mean, you've got to have enough passion for it that it's driving you and 
propelling you forward. And, and that energy that you put behind it leads you into spaces where you never quite knew. And, you know, I think that's the part that's a little frightening for people because, you know, you get on a road and I told myself this lots of times as I worked on Wax Poetics over the years and hit some real roadblocks and hit some real struggles, you know, not being able to pay my rent or whatever else, you know, and there have been so many times in my life prior where, you know, I may have hit a wall like that and said, oh man, you know what? I'm not doing this no more. I'm going to go do this. Um, and I kept telling myself, because I never knew what would happen if you don't stop and you just keep going and you stay on it and you wake up the next morning and you do it again and just stop, don't give up. You know, when you get on that road, what winds up happening is there's all these other windows of opportunity that open up. You, it may be around the corner and you can't see it yet, but if you start on that road and jump off, you'll never get there. And so I think it's about, you know, having that resiliency and that dedication to just keep doing it and not give up so that you don't know what that is going to be. But if you don't get there, you'll never find out. But there is something there because all that hard work is cumulative and it pays off. And whether it's in that one thing you're doing or that transfers into something else, um, I think, you know, having that blind faith almost is something that you kind of have to have if you really want to succeed in anything. And, uh, you know, it's hard, but, you know, it's, it's what it's all about. Andre Torres, man, what a great interview. This is fun. My man, thank you very much. Sir. Man, you're I good at this. this. Am I? <laughs> That's my people. They keep me on point. So I appreciate you. Thank bro. you so much. Thank you, man. You're thank the you best. For the time. You too, bro. Thank you. Thank you so much to the Silent Giants behind this episode of the Silent Giants podcast. This episode has been mixed by Mark Bird of MBM Studios, located in Astoria, Queens, NYC's number one recording studio for music, podcasting, and other audio recordings. Be sure to follow them on Instagram at MBM Studios NYC. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge, signing off till next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.